0: Hey Rockheads, clean the wax off your earbuds and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 318 with guest Dr. Neil Rudin, recorded live Tuesday, February 5th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklin.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, providing the best in Windows forms and ASP.net controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine. The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who thinks Doctor Carl has a nice ring to it, Carl Franklin.
1: Thanks, Lawrence, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here for your .NET listening pleasure. My partner in crime in Vancouver british columbia although right now i think you're in egypt
2: i am indeed i'm in luxor egypt at this very moment <laughs> richard campbell hey richard how <laughs> you doing sir oh it's another good day in dot net land i can't complain and don't we love radio technology we certainly do we love the the way that we can be everywhere all at once everywhere all the time I and mean, we'll even have shows coming out while we're at mix Giga bombs. <laughs> <laughs> all right let's get to uh better
1: know framework <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do you got for me? I'm not even going to tell people where that reference came from. Nope, let it go. Uh, you remember on the last show, I talked about the system.net.peer to peer namespace? Right. Well, it gets better there's more there's more the system.net.peer to peer.collaboration namespace wow enhances the peer to peer networking functionality and provides capabilities for serverless managed collaboration sessions no kidding so what does a collaborative session mean so again i'm reading from the docs here right the peer to peer collaboration infrastructure Uh, Which is, again, in all caps, provides a peer-to-peer network-based framework for collaborative activities such as network game matchmaking, Hmm. conferencing, and other interactive multi-participant activities. The serverless infrastructure includes APIs that simplify the process by which applications can track peer presence without a server send invitations to participants, discover peers on the same subnet, and manage contacts. How cool is this? That is amazing. we got to find the people responsible for this and have them on the show. This is a show in and of itself. We need a sample app for this. This sounds like a DNR TV waiting to happen. At least, and a .NET Rocks as well. Yeah. So we'll work on that, we promise. But in the meantime, Richard's got an email for us, I think. No, no email this time around. I'll get you one for next time. Okay, well... Send us an email so that uh, we can bring this segment back, please. Absolutely. Dot net rocks at franklins.net. Our inbox is dry. Okay, let's bring on Dr. Neil. Dr. Neil Rudin is a uh, software developer and architect and author and uh, speaker and writer and lives in uh, Australia, where he spends most of the time. He is a uh, agile expert and has been involved in many, many technologies and companies over the years since 1999. He's been involved with the agile development movement, as I said, especially extreme programming, which he's been using to help teams get more out of their development lifecycle. In the last several years, Neil's been uh, leading the push to .NET by running several .NET projects and teaching .NET courses. His mobile lifestyle has led him to into the realm of mobile platforms, and in the last couple of years, he's been helping developers with mobile-related development, including the tablet PC, pocket PC, and the smartphone Neil studied software architecture for real-time systems at the University College London, for which he received a PhD. That's why we call him Dr. Neil. Welcome, Neil.
3: Hey, Carl. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. And, you know, it's been a while since you've been on the show, but uh, a lot of people know you, through us anyway, from the, from the road trip. Because... That's right,
3: yeah. We did the uh, .NET road trip tracker. <laughs> which was a little virtual Earth website that tracked you as you drove around the country of the United States. Yes. Doing your crazy thing.
2: That was a lot of fun. Well, and and of course, at the time, it was wildly innovative, too. I mean, people are doing that all the time now, but... 3 years ago it was pretty tough to make that stuff work.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember you guys having like a uh, sticky tape uh, GPS to the window and <laughs>
1: downloading
3: right. stuff from, you know, connecting the GPS to your phone and uploading it to some site somewhere and then we were pulling that and yeah, it was it was it certainly wasn't kind of an all-in-one solution. It was kind of bits of uh, sticky tape and, and string holding things together. It was
2: definitely Rube Goldbergy. Yeah, and we (laughs) discovered that if we took a measurement every five minutes, we had so many points, the map wouldn't draw. So we had to sort of dial it back a bit, and it took a while to get it right. But we got to the point where people were estimating our speed based on the distance between the points. (laughs) That's right.
3: Which was actually totally wrong, wasn't it? Because they weren't taking into account the fact that you were actually stopping every 25 minutes for gas and (laughs) and burgers and soft drinks and...
2: That thing did consume a lot of gas. Oh, yes. The RV was heavy on the gas, and it was it was uh, speed limited to 75 miles an hour. It would not go any faster than that, apparently, because it would overheat. It wasn't really an ecologically friendly tour. Uh, no.
1: But uh, that got us around anyway.
3: So, so the rumor is that you're going to do it on bicycles next time. Is that right?
1: <laughs> yes, but only
2: in Connecticut. Right. We're not going uh-huh. across the country on a bicycle. Yeah. We got a couple of good backpacks. Let me tell you, the whole west half of Texas was a long way to drive, much less anything else. Yeah, we should have taken yeah, a I helicopter bet. for that leg. Like, Man, it's
1: a big country. So, let's talk about Mix. Are you going?
3: I'll be there. Yeah, Mix should be a lot of fun. There's uh, a heap of stuff coming that I can't talk about that I've been involved in. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, of course, a lot of stuff that we can talk about, which is Kind of the purpose of being here, talking to you guys. Um,
1: well, you heard it here first. There's going to be new things announced at MIX. Thank you. This has been a great show.
3: <laughs> right. Done. Okay. We'll see you next time. <laughs> so yeah, what's new? I mean, I guess obviously all the uh, the VS stuff that's already shipped. But there's, you know, I guess this is one of the first big conferences since all that stuff shipped, um, which is pretty cool. Um, There's, uh, I'm trying to think what I can talk about. (laughs) So I guess we know that there's going to be something coming with the Silverlight 2.0 that's been announced, but we haven't actually seen anything from, you know, an update since the 1.1 alpha. Right. Um, So we're hoping that we'll see a a 2.0 update, um, uh, some kind of CTP or beta or something come out at that time so we can actually get more into this uh, programming against Silverlight in .NET yeah. um, which is pretty cool um, so yeah I guess around the Silverlight space there's stuff to watch out for and then the whole user experience space um, it's the first show that's I guess got time to really focus on the new bits that shipped in .NET 3.5 and what's new in there for WPF and Silverlight for building richer user experiences and there, there is some stuff in the 3.5 uh, WPF that wasn't in 3.0 that um, yeah, makes life a little bit easier. One of the things that uh, I think is pretty cool, and there, there was a hack around this for 3.0, but uh, for 3.5, the support for um, 2D controls on 3D surfaces in WPF is there, and that's pretty neat.
1: Now, are you involved in Mix at all?
3: Uh, I'm involved in building some content that will be used at Mix, so hands-on labs and uh, demos, but I'm not going to be speaking at Mix this year. Uh, Last year was a a little bit crazy. Mix and MEDC were on at the same time, and I did, I think, four sessions at MEDC and two sessions at Mix, and I wasn't really sure which floor I was supposed to be on at any given moment. This year is going to be a lot calmer.
2: The first week of March is like a conference crisis there's half a dozen different things going on at the same time yeah
3: yeah there's a lot of people who i've asked if they're going to be a mix and they're at you know numerous other events or even going between two other events during that week and decided going between three was just a bit much
1: (laughs) richard you know somebody ought to step in and take control of all these dates and stuff don't you think uh, I don't know. I don't
2: think that's possible. You, you know, it would be very tough to coordinate all those sorts of things.
1: We need a coordinator. We, knew some, we need somebody who's experienced with planning conferences all over the world. Do you know anybody
2: like that, Richard? No, no idea. I don't think there's any way that that could actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Franklin's teasing me because I'm talking to a lot of different folks who are planning conferences and helping them make sure their weeks don't collide. Yeah, he's like the center of the universe for conference planning now.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's it, but it is inc- – I mean, you know, we've been I, – I work with a bunch of guys in the UK, and we run a, a site called screenedit.com, which is aimed at UK designers and branding and user experience type people. Um and september this year for those guys is reasonably insane i think there's a flash on the beach and then uh, there's like three or four events in september for that community uh, all in all in the uk and it's like well what the designers only work in september or something or is september their month off or i just yeah
2: yeah why does it all have to happen in the same month
3: yeah it's a little bit strange
1: now, back in back to that roadshow application, you were using Windows Live Services for that, right?
3: Yeah, I'm trying to think. We used Virtual Earth, of course, right? Um, and then, how are we plotting? Yeah, I think I think all we were doing was using Virtual Earth, and I'm not sure if we even used MapPoint Web Services for that one. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was using the Live Service stack.
1: And what's new in that stack?
3: oh, there's heaps of new stuff in, in live services, and actually there'll be some more stuff announced at Mix, so another reason to go along. But, uh, the yeah, the, I mean, live services come leaps and bounds in the last year since the first, I, I think they called it Cumulus, the first version that they uh, tried to ship of the platform in Mix 07, or that they did ship, but it, I guess it was uh, an alpha. Um, but, yeah, we've seen, I mean, we're now on Virtual Earth version 6, so I think we've seen two versions of Virtual Earthship since uh, last year. We've had um, a whole bunch of stuff around messenger controls, contacts controls. The I think the really exciting thing for me, actually, is the Visual Studio tools for live services, um, which, you know, up until now, live services have very much been, I guess, the realm of the the JavaScript programmer or the PHP programmer, someone that's into scripting and and you know calling from the browser across to uh, the servers, uh, the Visual Studio tools creates a set of ASP.NET controls that you can literally drag and drop from your toolbox and start programming against on the server side, and they generate using the ASP.NET AJAX. Uh, technology. They generate all the JavaScript for the client side for you, and away you go. You can code against them on the client side as well if you want. But uh, yeah, so the the first version of Visual Studio tools for Live shipped at Dev Connections, uh, which was at the same time as talking of conferences with Clash, same time as TechEd Europe last year yes. in November, um, and. Yeah, so that that's been out for a while, and and we're hoping to see a new version in the next few weeks of that. And you know, leading up to mix, that should be good with some new controls, and it will still be a pre-release version.
1: What kinds of things can you do with those controls, Neil?
3: Um, so there was a context control and a live ID control. So you could put your, you know, you could get anyone who logs onto the site see so they'd be able to see their list of buddies, interact with their messenger buddies on your site directly. Um, log on to your site using their live ID. Uh, I'm pretty sure that uses web authentication technologies. Um, search, of course, is another live technology which is easy to add on to your site. Um, so yeah, they're building out that set of Visual Studio tools to encompass most of the live services. Uh, I think the end goal is that you know all the major live services will be available to us as ASP.NET developers to really just drag and drop onto our Web forms and program against on the server side.
2: So we're talking about the CTP that's out at uh, devlivecom tools? Correct. Yeah. Ah. Okay. So uh, and a Silverlight streaming media control as well. Hey, Uh, I like that. So
3: you can. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And and actually, Silverlight streaming is maybe one of those technologies that's often overlooked. But yeah, if you're building Silverlight. Uh, video content or media content, Silverlight streaming, you know, is kind of an obvious one, but actually any Silverlight application can be hosted by Silverlight streaming. It doesn't have to be media. Uh, So you could put, you know, if you were building a series of Silverlight applications and you wanted lots of people to be able to access them, you could host them all in uh, Silverlight streaming. One of the things I've looked at using that for is actually allowing if you, you know, I work on a number of community sites and like, like I said, screen edit and via Windows Live. And it'd be nice to allow people to use the APIs to upload, you know, allow a developer who's built a cool little Silverlight app to upload it to your site so that it could become, you know, hosted on your site and uh, you could display in your gallery of, of content. So, yeah, that's something you can do with Silverlight Streaming because it's all programmatically accessible.
1: Do you know about uh, Telerik's Q3 2007 tools? They have a new version of the AJAX-powered grid with 10 times faster data binding, a new super-light navigation control pack added to the Telerik Next Generation ASP suite, codenamed Prometheus. But if you're into building desktop business applications, you'll have to try Telerik's unique UI suite for Windows Forms. All 32 desktop controls offer dazzling WPF-like effects. Scaling, rotation, object motion, transparency, so you can easily build apps with amazing flair. And how about a super easy yet powerful reporting tool, one that's pretty much codeless with wizards, expression builders, converters, and automatic operations? That's right, I'm talking about Telerik reporting, which is also part of their valuable bundle. This time, I think the Telerik guys have really outdone themselves. I won't have the time to cover everything. So you need to check out yourselves. Go to Telerik.com and download a trial. And, hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting Rocks. Can I ask you something about Silverlight Streaming? Because there's a very practical application I have in mind, which is um, I've been looking into this to, to re-energize our efforts in uh, broadcasting while we record our shows so that people can listen in to the recording. Uh, and then interact in, with the guest and, and that kind of stuff. So before yeah. we were using you know Windows Media Services, and I got the Expression Encoder to do the real time upload. I guess I could have used the Windows Media Encoder too, but yeah. the, there's a Expression Encoder. And um, is this Silverlight Streaming sort of replacing the media uh, server, or is this something that happens like in a web browser at the control side? only
3: to to, yes, to... It's, it's certainly not replacing it it's silverlight streaming is really what Microsoft is providing is a set of hosting for you
1: but it's on the server so, side
3: uh, you can program against it on the server side or the client side I mean it's got a set of APIs that you could you could program against but the um no the big benefit of Silverlight streaming is really your you're leveraging Microsoft's infrastructure or okay. the hosting
1: so they're doing the hosting you basically upload your stream and then they reflect it back. Correct. Wow. Yeah.
3: And 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 so then you can, you know, host that on your site and not pay the penalty. You know, you don't you're not paying for the for the streaming directly from your servers. It's being pushed out from the Microsoft servers.
1: Wow. How do they pay for that? I was just going to say what does that cost?
3: So you have limits. <laughs> Right now, um, the, the limits I'm trying to think, well, I think they're four gigabytes uh, of storage and then there's a certain amount per minute that you're allowed to stream. Oh, okay. Um, and, and I think they're going to change that. But if you go above the limits, then they start charging you and then you have to negotiate a deal with them. Um, and I don't think there's like a, here's the price list type scenario. It depends on what your scenario is. Um, and, and how far above the limits you're going, that then you need to talk to someone and do a deal with them.
2: All right. I mean, I guess that makes sense. It's great for experimenting with, but you can only go yeah. so far before, look, you got to pay for the bandwidth you're burning.
3: Exactly, yeah. And, and it's good for little community sites that want to share things amongst themselves that are, you know, non-commercial. Um, then you know, I, I think that there's a lot of value in, in using that kind of technology. And and the reality is, you know, if if you're not going to make any money, there's nothing Microsoft can charge you anyway. They just put you out of business. So there's no point in them charging you for
1: it, uh, Neil. So we've been talking a little bit about Silverlight, about WPF, and on the show lately, and what's new and what the state of it is, and all of that. What uh, what's really piquing your interest in WPF land these days?
3: I think. You know, the the big thing is, of course, the way it changes the way we can think about our experience with an application. Um, we're no longer constrained. And, and I don't like to say it this way, but the reality is we're no longer constrained to square boxes to put our windows in. But also, <laughs> we need to be aware that we don't want everything to be funny shapes on the desktop. But it does allow us to do some interesting things and some innovative things in a in a model that doesn't constrain us um, in terms of the development side. I like the model where we're really abstracting the presentation layer away from the code and and that's, that's goodness. I, I think actually the, the Visual Studio tools don't do us a lot of favors still in terms of this kind of Click and add an add an event handler behind it. um i you know I'm a strong proponent of doing stuff using either a model view controller or you know a separated architecture, shall we say? I mean, I think the Visual Studio click and add code in the event handler still I mean it's still there in WPF and it, I don't know that it necessarily helps us build better software, but what WPF does do is it abstracts that presentation layer away. Uh, another level so that it makes it easier to make changes to it. Um, I guess it, it's interesting if you look at how XAML is evolving as well. Um, it, it's no longer just a pure presentation layer. You know, people are starting to put functionality aspects into XAML, uh, which scares me a little bit because it changes the the notion of what a presentation layer is again.
1: Right, and the, it allows you to put code in there too. So, to some extent, declarative code.
3: Right. Logic anyway. And, and I'm not, I'm not convinced that's necessarily a good thing, but
2: um and Neil, what about screen edit?
3: Yeah, we started uh screen edit trying to think when we started. I guess it was well, screen edit's almost a version 2 of what we originally started, which was we started a website um, called Remerged, uh, Remerged.com, which we started. I'm trying to think about two years ago. The idea being that we had we had this thought, and this is me and a designer that I work with, and I've worked with Tricky for ooh, over ten years now, and he's a designer based in the UK. Um, and, and we looked at like where things were going with Silverlight and WPF. And you know, rich internet applications, as people are calling them, and richer experiences on the desktop. And we thought back to the beginning of the '90s, where you know the World Wide Web was starting to emerge, and people were starting to do interesting things on the internet. And you you kind of remember where all websites were you know, a brick background with a picture of some goofy student and his course material on it, because the only people that had access to the World Wide Web were pretty much in education, right? Um, and and then you know, come ninety five, ninety six, suddenly all these designers discovered the web, and they were like, "Oh, holy shit, we could do some really cool stuff here. We can put pictures on, and you know, we can do animations." and And Macromedia came to the party, and and F- Flash started to get interesting. And, and, you know, by the end of the 90s, we started to build much richer, although they were still really brochures online, but they were much richer brochures online with the ability, you know, and and what really drove that was designers coming to the party and and connecting with developers to build cool content that had uh, a stronger, richer feel to it. And then it all kind of went went away or it all kind of became boring, I guess, at the beginning of the 2000s. And, and we were like, okay, so that's been done. What's new? And what we saw happening was this new set of web as a platform plus the rich interaction model that's now available. We started saying, okay, well, maybe it's now time for designers and developers to get back together again and and start talking to each other about how they could build that next level of, you know, take it to another level. And I did a blog post about this a while ago, actually. You know, the web is no longer a place to hold brochures or, you know, dumb interactive content. You know, when you build something on the web now, you're really building an application. You're building a full app, a full rich application that's being hosted on a server and accessed through a dumb terminal called a browser. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so the screenedit.com is really an attempt to inspire the designer community to get... Get more involved and and, and understand the tools that are coming. Understand the technology and understand the shift that's starting to happen in this space. Where you're no longer, you know, as a designer, you may have always been, you know, on online. You would have been designing brochures essentially, Uh, and now you have the ability to design rich user experiences beyond just a menu and a click, but you know, really, really rich with media and 3D content and. It's no longer just a movie like a, a flash animation, but actually something that can have programmatic paths that you go down and, and take actions, and it can record things, it can push them up to your social network, it can push them out to databases. The, the ability to do things is extending, and I think we won't really see the value in that until the designers come back to the party and start really thinking a bit broader about what's achievable
1: Neil, do you does your company hire dedicated designers that work with developers?
3: So I work with a number of companies. I essentially I'm set up independently, and I don't have employees. But what I do do is I bring different companies together to carry out projects. Um, and so one, of, I have several companies that do uh, that I work with that do design. But one in particular that I work with very heavily is uh, a design studio in the UK called Tricky Business. Um, which is run by a guy called Tricky. And they do um, just some awesome online branding and and digital design experiences. Uh, And and so they're kind of the guys that I I built Screen edit out with.
2: Uh, I've asked this question of a couple other folks that are working seriously at Silverlight, and I'd be interested in your impression as well, Neil. Do you see Silverlight as being the facilitator for people to start embracing WPF, even though you know really started out that WPF came first and then there came Silverlight it seems to me that Silverlight has grabbed this subsect of WPF and is solving a a different problem being out on the web but it allows people to get into a piece of WPF so that ultimately they may bring it back to the client side work
3: yeah i think it works both ways actually i mean i think i mean we just finished a, a project where we actually started in WPF we built a fairly large scale application in WPF and then we took some of the assets that were built in WPF and shim them down to create a, a a light version, if you want, of, this, of the application that ran online in Silverlight. Um, so, it, you know, it works that way, but it also works the other way in that you could start building Silverlight content uh, online, start to see the, the value and the experience that you could create, and then go, hmm, if only I could access some of these document functions that don't exist in Silverlight, if I could take that and build a richer client experience where I can take those assets, um, pull them into uh, a WPF project, and start coding against them in WPF. And then, yeah, it works that way too. It's an interesting conversation because I, I don't think it will work, you know, I don't think there's, there's any one answer to it. It will work both ways, and it depends which way you start. So if a project starts as an online project, people will go, hmm, could we take this to another level by making it a rich client experience? And I think if it starts as a rich client experience, it's almost a no-brainer to put it into a Silverlight application and, and create a lighter a lighter weight experience online for the same application. I think one of the big strengths, though, of XAML being reusable, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's a subset of the XAML, as you pointed out, but is that, as, as companies start to build assets and asset libraries of XAML that's on brand, that's connected to, you know, what they're doing or to their particular project or their product, those assets are going to be shareable between online and rich client experiences.
2: It's interesting to think about just how these things are all coming together and, uh... I just can't wait till Silverlight has the 3D stuff. I have to wonder if they're ultimately going to go that route that will end up with a full set of WPF available there. And it seems like with Silverlight 2.0, they've really almost changed directions away from WPF by focusing on the language elements and and things like that.
3: Yeah, I, I think there's a big challenge with Silverlight, and that is keeping the download size small. Yeah. As soon as you get into doing some of the... The more chunky stuff like document flow, like document handling, and and 3D controls, and all those things that are really sweet and really nice to have, it's going to be pushing that download size up. And one of the really nice things I think right now about Silverlight 1.0 is just how small and fast it is to download. So, it's,
2: it's like a megabyte, right? And I got to think 2.0 is going to be several times that.
3: Well, it's going to have to be right. I mean, one one already is. So yeah. What what we're going to end up with with two O is definitely going to be, but I think they definitely they 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 have a, they've set themselves an interesting challenge to solve, which is you know put as much features in as possible, but keep the download size small.
1: Hmm. Right, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to have to write in an assembler code.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, they're gonna yeah. You know, Does I don't think it really makes much odds. They're going to have to cut features essentially. They're going to have to be very very cautious about adding new features and, and whether they're really valuable. I mean, you know, a really good example of this is the dock panel, right? Like, think about layout containers. Doc panel, okay, it's kind of cool, it's nice to have, but you can achieve the same thing with a grid. Don't, right. don't have it. Right. And and so we'll, we'll see the same thing. If, if it's possible to achieve the same thing another way, then it won't be in Silverlight.
1: Right. If you right. do with HTML, JavaScript... For example,
3: well, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, it's interesting to me that if you're a really hardcore Ajax programmer, you can almost accomplish everything that you can do in Silverlight in Ajax. Um, so it, it's kind of Silverlight maybe makes it uh, more accessible to the masses and means that you don't have to be a super hardcore. Ajax programmer to do this, but there's a huge amount of stuff you can do. You know, the whole of Virtual Earth is essentially an Ajax application. Right. And that's a pretty rich experience. So yeah, it's it's how far do you want to take it, but it's also about maintainability as we all know. Light software is is not just about shipping the product or getting, you know, version one out the door. There's gonna be a version two, there's gonna be a version three and as you start building out your applications in WPF or Silverlight you want them to be maintainable and Building large-scale AJAX applications become very unmaintainable. All this JavaScript all over the place, and
2: I've, I find JavaScript apps remarkably debug-resistant.
3: <laughs>
2: very challenging <laughs> to debug get debug-resistant. Yeah.
3: Well, uh, Visual Studio 2008 makes that a whole lot easier. Um, you can you can pretty much step in. I mean, you've always been able to with Visual Studio step into JavaScript, but yeah, it's the uh, It's definitely more challenging and, and, you know, watching the types. And, of course, there is no type safety, so knowing what a variable is is kind of critical and what it was set to. Um, So, yeah, it it does. I have to say, programming JavaScript does feel like a huge step back after you've been in a type-safe world for a long time.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Neil, tell us about Grava.
3: Oh, well, okay. I'll tell you about Grava. (laughs) Gravas, uh, is, I laugh because I was asked not to talk about Grava, but seeing as you asked me, it would be rude not to answer. Um,
2: <laughs> well, and I would point out, I mean, you can go to connect.microsoft.com slash Grava. It's out in the public.
3: It is out in the public. So the first CTP is shipped, and, and Gravas is an educational tool um, that allows People building educational content to collate that content, build new content, create publications in a rich environment. And it has an SDK that I've been working with that is all based around WPF. So you can build WPF user controls, and they can act as elements within a Grava presentation. You can build WPF user controls as activities, and an activities like a self-contained component. Uh, of education. So it could be, you know, a particular lesson could be an activity or a particular point that you wanted to teach could be an activity. And then you can collate these activities together into Grava packages or presentations, which run through a Grava player.
2: And I've looked at some of the screenshots and they're beautiful.
3: Yeah, you can create really rich, beautiful content. I mean, I've been using Grava for, I guess, a couple of months now. And I really feel like I shouldn't be using PowerPoint at all anymore. Um, PowerPoint as a a presentation tool and as a tool especially for teaching and for running training courses just doesn't cut it. I mean, the fact that you can do really rich, you know, create really rich interactive content in Grava is a huge step up. It's not about, you know, predetermined paths that something will animate across, you know, on a slide deck. It's actually interactive. You can build interactive functional components in Grava that, you know, communicate with each other and do whatever you can do in code. So, yeah, it's it's a very powerful toolkit. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing it get, you know, next CTP and get into beta and get out there. I think we'll see some really interesting
2: stuff. It just seems to me that they're taking WPF and they're making these implementations yep. uh, to make it simpler for people to utilize the technology. But at the same yeah. time... I'm still waiting for my controls in studio. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Excuse me for being difficult. I want my controls.
3: <laughs> you can build those
2: controls.
1: Yeah. Why do I have to? Yeah. Where are you seeing these screenshots, Richard?
2: Uh, on the if you go to the the the, uh, the Connect Grava site, there was a uh, a link there for uh, screenshots, or just Google screenshots for Grava.
3: Yeah and the other thing, I mean you think about like Grava elements the Grava has an offering tool that lets you really as a as a non programmer build connect elements together to build activities. So Grava reaches all the way from I guess the nerd as us as programmers who want to build our own set of elements through to a teacher sitting trying to put together some teaching materials that you know, with existing elements that are there. Uh, and, and then packaging them up. So, yeah, it lets you go as deep as you want to go.
1: So you can basically create your own Expedia-style kind of content. That's what it
0: looks
3: like. You could do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it goes further than that in that if you think about it, it's it's almost a, a tool for creating rich
2: publications. And like you said, an alternative to PowerPoint Right. That this idea of presenting information that is interactive and animated and connects together is a—it's a far better product than PowerPoint for that kind of thing, both in a presentation form when people are watching it and a, and a one-on-one form when you give it to someone.
3: Right. Yeah. And and that's really, I think, you know, one of the big strengths is the one-on-one, where you could actually set people little challenges within the presentation. Um, you know, here you go, we've taught you a lesson now, see if you can answer these questions before you get onto the next slide, if you want to call it that, but into the next activity.
2: Right, To drill into it. And it, and you could actually use the same presentation for both things. One where right. you go across the top of it in a group, and then the next where people go into it and as they explore it, find additional activities in it. Absolutely,
3: absolutely, yeah. I, I've I've hated PowerPoint for a very long time, and, and it, it's really just a... I don't see it as a good way of presenting material. I see it as a, a, a... I mean, people use it as a crutch to lean on so that they can, you know, kind of walk themselves through...
2: Read their bullet points. Right. It's it's actually notes that you show the audience for yourself. Uh, I right. describe PowerPoint this way. So There's a fundamental cognitive dissonance here. Either I'm speaking or it's speaking. If there's words in two places, then there's a conflict. I agree. So we have a right. choice. Either I talk and show you images or it talks and I do interpretive dance. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and and how's the dance bit going?
2: Uh, not so good, you know, because I just have not found the right move for and I am an endpoint.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky move. It, yeah, it I got to get that one right. I just don't have the balance for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics, who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at Datadynamics.com.
3: So, yeah, I mean, I've tried many times to convince people, especially at Microsoft events, that I'm not going to do a PowerPoint, but have been told point blank you must have a PowerPoint. Um, yeah, I'd love to be able to ditch PowerPoint
2: altogether. Speaking know. of must-have-a-PowerPoint, let's talk TechEd, because let's face it, we must have a PowerPoint at TechEd. We must have a PowerPoint at TechEd, yeah. No tech choice at all. Cool. And I know, I've know i noticed this year for TechEd US, the the regional directors, of which all three of us are one, are uh-huh. deeply involved in the conference planning, and you're one of them.
3: That's right, yeah. We, there's a, a, a number of us who are involved in each of the different tracks, and I, I think they're calling us track chairs or co-chairs or something, I never pay much attention to titles, but essentially we're helping guide the direction of the content that will be at TechEd this year, which right. I think is good because often it's very focused and driven by the marketing folks.
2: Yeah, we yes, well, it's, yep. and, it's always internal and, people that are doing all of this,
3: right? Yep. And they don't really know what's happening in the rest of the world, as we know. Redmond lives in its own bubble. Um, yeah,
2: so no doubt about it. So, what are you working on?
3: I'm doing. I'm working with the mobile and embedded track. So all the stuff to do with Windows Mobile, CE, all the uh, good stuff that's out there for uh, Windows Mobile and embedded. And there should be some pretty cool sessions, I think. Um, There's not going to be an MEDC this year at all. So it's the uh, replacement, if you like. If you want to get your fix of mobile and embedded technology and lessons and what's new and what's coming it's really going to be TechEd this year, to come, will be the event to come to. Um, and, yeah, it, it's much... In terms of mobile-embedded, This year is much, much bigger than it's ever been at TechEd before as well. So we should see, you know, there's a a good number of sessions. There's a good amount of content. There's really some very cool speakers turning up. So, yeah, it should be an awesome, awesome event. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, also very much looking forward to getting the final sessions nailed down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah. I guess you've got to do that. Of course, now that they've split TechEd into two weeks, IT and Dev, suddenly Dev has a lot of elbow room we get to have a lot more sessions and a lot more content and a, and a closer uh, group of people. So I'm I'm totally stoked about TechEd this year because we're doing a ton of stuff. There's so much space and so much room. I think we're going to get a chance to drill way deeper into the topics we really care about. And that's always good. Yeah,
3: and that's an interesting conversation point as well, this kind of split between IT
2: and dev, which
3: happened in Europe a few years back. And they've been, you know, I guess, testing it, if you like, for the last few years and, Reasonably successfully, I would say. Um, and I know that for some people it's like, oh, but I want to go to both. Well, you can if you really want to. But
2: uh. Uh, uh, Hello, I'm going to both, and I'm horrified that I have to spend two weeks in Orlando. <laughs> 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 but uh, it's kind of fun for us because we spend one week doing .NET Rocks for a week and another week doing Run As Radio for the week.
1: Excellent. yeah well except for me I after uh, the first week I'm gonna go to the New Orleans Jazz festival so you guys can have fun well and Greg's only coming in for the IT week
3: so it's
2: only me that does both
3: yeah very cool but yeah I mean I think you know one of the one of the issues that I've definitely seen as presenter at teched over the years is this you know you do a session and it has a title that's maybe not so obviously a developer session or maybe even is an obvious developer session but you get people who are interested in it, and they come along, and they go, oh, well, I didn't realize you were going to be showing code. Um,
2: it's <laughs> and a, it's so we're a developer session. What else would I do?
3: Right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I understand it from their perspective as well. They want to know about the technology. There's only two sessions about that technology, and they're both developer sessions. So what do they right. do? Well, they go along to those sessions, and they get annoyed because the whole session is code, 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 code. Um it, it is a frustration that I feel both from an attendee point of view and from a speaker point of view. So I think it does clarify things a lot. It means that I know that my audience sitting in my room when I'm doing a session are developers or right. are IT pros. Right. And I can gear my session much more focused towards that rather than kind of have to do a little bit of on-the-fly now. Who's in this room? Everyone stick your hand up if you write vb.net or C-sharp. Uh, everyone who administers a, a server box that you know is linked through to you know exchange with multiple Windows mobile clients, stick your hand up. Oh, okay, it's going to be a tough audience.
2: Right. But <laughs> you run into that with mobility. I run into that with SQL Server all the time. Right. And then there's also technologies like, I would say, card space is a terrible conflict because it's a security technology and there's a bunch yeah. of coding needs to be done to it, and there's a bunch of implementation that has to be done with it.
1: Do they actually double the content in terms of the volume of content that they show at TechEd, or do they actually take what they have already and just split it
2: out into two weeks?
3: Well, I know that there's a lot more sessions, uh, mobile and embedded sessions this year than they've ever been before, so I'm assuming they're increasing the content.
2: Yeah, you know, the limiting factor was space. Right. And now... Th- the space hasn't changed, but the amount of time is increased. So we gotta presume we've got a lot more room for a lot more sessions.
3: And I guess the, you know, the number of technologies that they need to talk about has increased massively as well now. Oh, um, I think
2: that's been the conflict for a while now with tech ed in the US. It's just, it's just too much to talk about and everybody wants to get in. That's right. There's never been enough slots for all the
1: stuff they want. I mean not you, even close. You get Microsoft's people that they have to get in there, right? And then you're always hearing, you know, the even some top speakers, even the Kim trips of the world you know i didn't get the sessions i wanted this year just not enough room yeah
2: so i really think that this is going to be a breakout year i think with the engagement of the new organizers and the additional space and the vast array of projects a whole bunch is going to happen all at once
3: i'm hoping so i I think you know it may not happen straight away it may take a couple of years for people to really work it all out Uh, I, i think it definitely scares some attendees and who who have that cross? You know, one of the I think one of the strengths of the old style tech ed was that there is a large number of attendees who cross over both, you know, between IT admin and IT pro and developer, um, and especially in the smaller orgs. You know, if you're if you're a small company, um, you end up doing most things. Yeah, and so the ability to go to oh, I can spend this morning doing some sessions about the new features of server and i can spend this afternoon doing some sessions about the new features of asp.net 3.5 yeah there's definitely people who sit in that realm as well so
2: i wonder if people are going to straddle like come in on the wednesday and leave the following wednesday Ooh, kind of
3: huh, interesting
2: interesting indeed yeah don't know. it's only gonna you know it used to be that the big thing with tech was always get your sessions in early when everybody's fresh yeah because by the time you get to friday everyone's brain fried and now I wonder if that's going to change up because people are straddling weeks and things.
1: Interesting. Well, it certainly doesn't make it a sure thing. Well, it's neat that the RDs get to help out this year. Neil, you've got some thoughts about the RD program that, uh, you know, you
3: might as well just come out with. <laughs> hey, it's your
1: career, you know.
3: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I really do appreciate being awarded as an r d and and you know knowing that I'm getting some kind of recognition for the stuff that we do, I think that's fantastic um I guess I still have this question in my mind you know and so and so what and and why and you know kind of what is it we actually do and and you know I know the r d program's history goes way back you know even before d p e really existed as a department or within the developer and platform evangelist group, that is, within yeah. Microsoft. Um, and, you know, originally RDs were the, were the community go-to guys out in the world who were doing cool stuff with the community.
2: Well, this is um, we, I mean, the original RDs drove Dev Days. Right, that was our job. Back before Microsoft was, that's when you we were actually a regional director. You were the regional guy who directed Dev Days. Right. Now we don't have a region, we don't direct anything, and we right. don't work
1: for Microsoft.
3: <laughs> yeah, and and I guess that's the other thing that's kind of interesting is that I think most regional directors spend six months of the year on the road. Yeah, so they're actually not not connected to their region whatsoever <laughs> you know, for half the year.
1: Well, and remember, you remember the RD program started before the internet boom, so yeah. you know there wasn't such a thing as a global personality like we have now. You know. And there's a whole handful of regional directors who fit into that category that do more work in, you know, in their country, uh, all over their
2: countries than their region. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tougher concept now.
3: Well, I mean, some, some people, their country is their region. That's true. We're not all so lucky to have, you know, a, a big country that's split up into lots of sections. No,
1: you're absolutely true. Some of true. Live in a
3: big country that's just one country. Yeah. And I, I, I think the other thing is the naming. Like, I think it really confuses people. People say, Oh, you know, you say, Oh, I'm original director for Microsoft and the immediate response is you're an employee. Right. And, and then you set them straight about that and then they're really confused. Um and and and, and just finding a title that says what we do might <laughs> might be a good starting point. It's I know it's hard to change titles once they're kind of embedded in people's right. minds. I as think well, that's the but, issue. Uh,
1: you don't want to change branding.
3: Yeah. Changing brand is a very tough thing to do, uh, but yeah it does it, 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 it does present in some ways it presents as many challenges as it does opportunities being a regional director. so I, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying hanging out with you guys and and having the conversations that we have online and and you know having access I guess to you know, each other directly and and some of the things that we're getting up to is kind of useful and interesting and and helpful.
1: Um, and we have made a difference to Microsoft too. Um, that's you know, oh the,
3: undoubtedly, it's very
1: yeah. valuable to them. Very yeah. valuable program.
3: Yeah, and, and that's what the reward is really about. I, I, I mean, that's how I see it. Is the re, the reward is for the fact that we do make a difference.
1: Right now, you're also an MVP.
3: I am. I'm a Windows Live Developer MVP or Windows Live Platform. I think it's been renamed to now the Windows Live Platform MVP program. Um which is, of course, all about writing code on Windows Live services. Uh, and and the MVP program is another strange one, I think, that has changed over the years and has also kind of, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say... Div- yeah, I think it has become less valuable than it was, maybe, and the, certainly the fact that there's so many more MVPs means that it's less exclusive to be an MVP.
2: Um it's still a pretty small group. It's about four thousand MVPs. Yeah. But I, I get your meaning, and they've certainly expanded the breadth of the MVP program. It includes a lot more things now.
3: Right. I mean, it used to be people that just answered questions on online news groups. Um, right. And and now it's 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 anyone that's involved or adds value to community or adds value to the platform. Um, I I think the thing that worries me most about the MVP program really is that there are definitely people in the MVP program who set out at the beginning of the year with like a plan of how to maintain their MVP status or how to become an MVP next year and then then work that plan rather than really having the passion behind the technology. Um, They're they're almost doing it. The MVP program to some people has definitely become a certification rather than a reward. Um, and that
2: concerns me a little bit. Yeah, it, it's something unto itself, and, uh, and that's always an interesting thing. Uh, yeah. The, the whole concept of maintaining your MVP is an interesting thought. But Right. Uh, I mean, folks do it. Folks take their, their uh, role really seriously. I think they... You, when you get to the MVP summit, you see a lot of folks that are, this is their chance to go into the product team and work with them closely to really have some influence. And they're, they're excited about that. It's important to them. They don't want to let go of their MVP ness. Uh, I wasn't yeah, going well, go that's,
1: there.
3: That's always fair, isn't it, Colm?
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. Sorry. I
3: yeah I, I mean I actually think that's the most value it's It's when they like you know you can almost see them at the beginning of the year they plot out twelve months of I'm going to do two user groups I'm going a month I'm going to write four articles this year I'm going to answer seventeen questions on this news group and twenty five questions on this news group yep that'll be me an m v p next year
1: well if you're <laughs> if you're an m v p and you're listening to this and the light is going on, you're saying you know maybe dr. Neil's right maybe you're, you, it sounds like they're describing you then uh, what, should this, what should they do?
3: Follow their passion. If you, if you really love technology, then just go with it. You know, do what you want to do to make the technology better. Do what you can do to help people use that technology better. Uh, you know, my goal have for a very long time has been to increase the value of people's software. And I don't really care whether I'm an MVP or an RD, as long as I'm helping people build better software. And so that's really, you know, I stick to that as my core goal.
2: It's right on your website. Increase the value of your software.
3: It's right there on my website. I, I wear it on my sleeve. It's, you know, I want to help people build better software. And so that's where my focus is. And I'll do what it takes. And if I get awarded for doing that, that's absolutely fantastic. And I'm, you know, very happy about that. If I don't, you know, just as good. As long as I'm helping people build better software, that's great.
1: I think follow your passion is my, uh, is my motto. I've certainly lived by that.
3: I mean, I think follow the passion and and really just do what you want to do and do what you think is the right thing to do. And you know, the other interesting thing to me is that might change the MVP program if you start finding other avenues to to support people doing the right thing or doing better stuff or building better software or using tools better. The MVP program will change direction and start going. Oh wow, look at all this cool stuff! We should award people for doing that.
1: Well, we've uh, just about come to the end of the show. Is there? anything that you we haven't talked about that you really want to get in there any shout outs or some stuff you want to call attention to
3: um, I guess on the on the theme of <laughs> helping people build better software I've had a, a lot of thoughts recently after working with a number of different software teams and managers and uh, and people around the software industry about you know I was almost going to start a blog post of if you write code you probably shouldn't to shouldn't do um, because there's just so many people in the industry that are really not doing the industry any favors. Um, but I, I, I've held off from writing that blog post because I actually realised that you know I need to twist it and I need to change it. And what needs to happen is it needs to be a blog post on you know what you should do to write better code. It needs to be a blog post on you know how to improve what you're doing. Some in positive industry.
1: suggestions rather than just a smack,
3: right? And, and you know I think that. The, The software development industry has become a little bit like uh, an industry, I'm trying to think of an equivalence. I mean maybe like medicine or law where people go in just purely because they think they're all going to be billionaires within five years of working in the industry. Of course the reality is most people aren't and the only people that ever are are the ones that have such enormous passion anyway that they're just going to drive, drive, drive. Um, So if you don't have that passion, you know, I guess you know rule number one for me is back to the passion. If you really don't love what you're doing in software development, get out and go and find something. You or do in love anything, because you'll right. Yeah, in anything, you'll never you'll never be a great software developer. If you go to work if, in if you, if you, if you go it. to
1: work in the morning thinking, ah, oh, another day,
3: you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah.
1: All right, Neil. So we're gonna see you at Mix. And we're gonna see you at Tech Ed. And uh, until then, have a good one. Enjoy the. Enjoy the Australian summertime, which it is right now. I will do.
3: Yeah,
1: put some shrimp on the Bobby and, I will do. Uh, thanks, Carl. All right, and we'll speak to you next time on DotNet Rocks. DotNet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com.
2: Got
1: a band by the FCC. is hard.